Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, why an applicant for a prestigious fellowship ran into problems on the language requirement and how a Tempe artist thinks about baking as a metaphor for life in the Sonoran Desert. But first, it is time for the Friday Newscap and some voices from the news this week. We will not shirk our responsibilities, and we will not kick the can down the road for our children and the next generation to solve. And we will not cut spending on vital services. Candidly, her policy agenda is so extreme and so misguided in terms of the quality of the policy that she's proposing. I don't believe that there will be uh, a ton of agreement on it. Governor Hobbs wants you to believe she's all about securing our border and ending the lawlessness caused by Joe Biden's broken immigration system. But her record is one of open borders, and despite her grandstanding, she's continued that approach as governor. But this is not something that we can wait to see whether there's going to be an issue later on this year. We Mm -hmm. need action by the legislature and the governor now. We have all come together to defeat this abortion amendment because its broad language is deceiving. I think this is a trap for Republicans to turn the Democrats into the ones protecting jobs now. They're, they're like giving up all their the classic Republican you know, strongholds. And with me to talk about Governor Hobbs' state of the state speech, legislative Republicans' response to it, and more are Matthew Benson of the firm Veritas. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. And attorney and former congressional staffer Roy Herrera. Roy, good morning to you. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to both of you. So, Matt, let me start with you, somebody who has worked on and written states of the state speech uh, with uh, Governor Jan Brewer. What do you think of, of Governor Hobbs? I thought it was a solid speech. You know, that's a that's a difficult environment to walk into. Very narrowly divided House and Senate. So much political polarization. She tried and I think with some success, uh, tried to emphasize the need for the state to come together in a bipartisan way. Uh, I thought it was really interesting, and this differs from the speech she gave a year ago. She really came straight out of the shoot talking about the border yeah. and going after the Biden administration, not by name, but referring to the federal government repeatedly in its failure to secure the border and the cost that that has created for the state of Arizona. So I thought it was a different approach that she took this year. She still had plenty of red meat in there for progressives on you know, going after ESAs, for example, talking about abortion access. Uh, But I I thought it was an interesting speech, and I I think in some ways she was trying to find common ground with Republicans because ultimately she's going to need a certain certain number of Republicans to get anything done this session. Yeah, Roy, bipartisanship was certainly something that she talked about uh, in this speech. What did did you make of it sort of on the the overall theme here? Well, I agree with Matt. I think it was a speech that was designed and and did appeal to a a very wide audience. I mean, I think it was an effort from the governor to try to forge some bipartisan compromise on on a number of issues. And I think there were a number of issues in the speech itself that, you know, that should, you know, receive some bipartisan compromise. I mean, when she talked about things like updating our our groundwater policy, which Mm -hmm. haven't been updated in 40 years, uh, when she talks about you know, the sober living homes crisis and providing, you know, some additional regulations and licensing to try to stamp out uh, fraud and, and waste in that area. 
um, even things like, you know, housing affordability and sort of talking about pro- providing some help for, for home buying for people that need it. There's some areas there, I think, where, where there should be some, some compromise. But then, of course, you do have some issues like, and, I, and I'm well aware that Republicans say the ESA proposal is dead on arrival, but something like ESAs, which is a common sense proposal that she's going to be pushing this year, and if it's not successful, certainly pushing uh, at the ballot in this, this November. What did you make of the fact that she came out, as Matt pointed out, like very early on in the speech and for quite a while talking specifically about the border? Well, she's been talking about the border now for, for, you know, for a while. I mean, certainly since Lukeville and, and everything that happened there. And it's clear. I mean, Senator Kelly, Senator Sinema, Governor Hobbs, I mean, all the top elected officials in Arizona are very concerned about sort of the unprecedented situation at the border and trying to get additional resources here. Obviously, Congress is working on that right now, but mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, and of course, that's another area where I would assume there'd be um, a lot of bipartisan agreement with Republicans on addressing that issue. So, Matt, when you think about some of the issues that, that she talked about, Roy mentioned some of them, things like water and housing affordability and sober living homes. Do you anticipate agreement between Republicans and Democrats, or is it maybe too soon to say here? I think that there will be some areas of agreement, but they will, there will, they will be few and far between. Hmm. And that's just, that's just the reality of our, our current political climate in the state and nationally. There aren't a lot of, of areas of agreement. Uh, this is an election year. And, you know, a lot of these legislators will face primaries, whether from their left or their right, depending on their party. And so there's not a lot of political incentive to come together and work across the aisle. I wonder if this in some ways is like a, a bit of a catch-22 for some, especially Republican lawmakers, but probably applies to Democrats as well, where, you know, you want to get out of session as soon as you can in an election year because you want to campaign, you can't raise money from certain people during the session. So there's an incentive to be done. But at the same time, to your point, if you are seen as making a deal with Democrats, that might not be such a, an attractive thing in the primary. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny because Roy and I were talking about that earlier. I mean, Mark, you and I are kind of old dogs here. <laughs> that used to be the way. Yeah. During an election year, legislators wanted to get out early so they could get out on the campaign trail. It has not played out that way in the last few cycles. And in some ways – there is actually more incentive for a lot of these legislators to stay in session because that's where they have the loudest platform. Mm. They have the biggest bully pulpit. And so uh, they're inclined to just stay. And so I, I don't expect a short session. That's uh, that's reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Roy, we heard the governor also talk and we heard her at the, at the very top of the show talking about uh, dealing with the state's uh, budget shortfall, roughly $400 million for the rest of this fiscal year, the re- last six months or so, 400 or so million dollars uh, shortfall for the coming fiscal year. She'll be releasing her budget proposal uh, a little bit later on today. Is is there any chance that this is something that that Republicans and Democrats do you think could this be an area of agreement where you know the governor says okay here's how I think we should you know we can manage one or both of these and Republicans in large part say yeah that's what we were thinking too. I mean there is a chance there's always a chance there's kind of two pathways here one pathway I think is the easy way um, and that maybe perhaps we get a shorter session out of it because the shortfall I think is not as bad as I think people expected there was sort of a sky is falling feeling Mm -hmm. at the end of last session Um, it's not quite as bad now to the point where I think there's I think some understanding that through you know accounting and you know doing things like sweeps and whatnot you know pausing capital projects that were agreed to last year that we can get to a point where we can get a budget done that doesn't cut essential services that everyone can sort of agree on and go home. 
So that's one pathway. The other pathway is if some of these other policy issues that we've been talking about creep into the budget discussion and then we're in this in sort of impasse that lasts for months. Matt, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I kind of have a sense of which way you think this one might go. Are, 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 you, think, are you thinking about, about second choice, uh, choice B that, that Roy was outlining? Look, I think that the governor has signaled she intends to uh, – first off, quick background. The last budget was approved. There was about a $2 billion surplus. The legislators were all given a certain amount of money that they could choose to spend as right. they wanted as part of that process. A lot of capital projects, a lot of transportation – The governor has signaled that she intends to go back and claw as much of that money back as she can in terms of like transportation projects that have not yet begun. I think that's going to be the first step. But remember, all of those projects, those were all approved by legislators and certain legislators who had those as their top priorities. So there will be a fight over those issues. So I I don't think it's going to be easy. I mean, look, $400 million in in the current fiscal year, which is an $18 billion general fund, is a – relatively small amount of money. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard to imagine that amount like in the real world being a small amount. But yes, in the so- overall scope of the budget, it's not a ton. I mean, under Brewer, we cut 40 percent from the general fund. So, you know, compared to that, this is a piece of cake. Um, but all of these things that nothing's easy. It'll be a fight. Well, I'm curious, Matt, especially given, as you pointed out, how the budget was done last year. There's a lot of concern early in the session, like how were the Republicans and the Democrats going to get together on this? And as it turns out, they did it by, as somebody referred to it as doing the Oprah budget, where everybody gets money and they can do what they want with it. This year, you can't do that. So does that set up a potentially more difficult and fraught process? I, I think it does. And I think in particular, watch watch the Freedom Caucus because, you know, it, they, they set the tone in a lot of ways at the legislature, and I think they're going to be disinclined to do anything that looks like an accounting gimmick. So rollovers or sell, you know, sale leaseback of state buildings or all, all the various tricks and, and gimmicks and things that have been used in the past I, I think will be a very difficult sell this, this time around. So, Roy, if that is in fact the case, some of those accounting things that, that have been done in the past are not really on the table, what, is that, what does that leave the, the players with here? Well, then we're in that sort of impasse scenario. And, and I think at that point, what we're sort of relying upon is what you kind of started with with this question. And, and I agree with um, with Matt. We were talking about this earlier. And, I, and I'm older than I look, so I'm an old dog, too. <laughs> uh, in the old days, uh, it used to be in an election year, people would want to get done so they can go campaign. And, right. and especially in the current environment down at the legislature where there's only a one-seat majority in both chambers for the, for the Republicans, you know, I think everyone's anxious to sort of get out there. So – if we're in that world where things are dragging along, I think the one pr- counter pressure to that would be we need to get out so we can start campaigning and get the election going. So, Roy, if you had to look into a crystal ball and predict one or more areas uh, where the governor and legislative Republicans will find common ground, like last year, for example, the extension of uh, Prop 400, they, have, of course, did the budget. There were some other things that, that they agreed on. What what comes to mind to you as sort of th- this is where they may be able to come together and get something done? Probably sober living homes and addressing that. Um, I mean, I would say water because that's obviously, I think, the number one priority. It seems that the number one priority from the governor, but obviously, you know, groundwater policy is is very complicated. There's a lot of water bills that are already dropping down there yeah. uh, this week, so that's harder. But that should be another area where there should be some agreement. Matt, what do you think? Uh, Prop one two three extension and specifically 
uh, emphasizing teacher pay. Okay. Yeah, that, that was the, the initiative to take extra money out of the uh, state land trust for, for schools. And, and there's a proposal uh, in the legislature from Republicans to continue, basically ask voters to continue that, but specifically the money would go to teacher pay as opposed to anything else. you think that's something that, that they'll agree on? I, I think they'll find common ground. I mean the, the, the governor's indicated that she wants to do something similar. She would like to expand it so it also applies to other education professionals, you know, cafeteria workers, bus drivers, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think they'll find so, – they'll, they'll get something done. There's too much political incentive to uh, to do it. All right. That is Matthew Benson, also joined by Roy Herrera. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. The Friday Newscap continues in just a moment. Good morning. It's the Friday Newscap on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. My guest this week, attorney and former congressional staffer Roy Herrera and Matthew Benson of Veritas. So, Roy, let me start with you on the U.S. Senate race. We saw some uh, fundraising numbers come out this week. The first quarter that uh, Democrat Ruben Gallego and uh, Republican Kerry Lake were really both sort of head to head. And uh, Gallego outraised Lake $3.3 million to $2.1 million dollars. I'm curious what you make of those numbers, but also, like, how important are they given the amount of outside money that's expected to come into this race? Well, I mean, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I'm counsel to the Gallego campaign, uh, so, but I'll try to be as objective as possible. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, you know, I think on the Gallego side, I mean, this is three straight campaign finance quarters where he's been over $3 million, so the fundraising has been very consistent. The type of fundraising, meaning that it's majority small dollar donors, has been consistent. So I think that leads, you know, to a conclusion that he has a very strong fundraising base going forward. You know, Carrie Lake raised um, you know, a good amount less money in her first quarter, and you would expect the first quarter to be sort of like the best quarter you're going to have until the heart of the election. So I'm not surprised those 2.1 million, um, but it's probably going to be less uh, next time around. And I'm very curious what she has, and this gets actually to your question, what her cash on hand is, because now it goes up to 6.5 million cash on hand. That's a good amount of money. Who's, you know, who knows how much Carrie Lake has. But yes, there were going to be tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars spent on independent expenditures in the Senate campaign. But it's still very important for these campaigns to have their own campaign war chest that they can spend and, and use wisely for, for the kinds of things that they want to do, because they have to be on TV as well. Right. Well, so Matt, when you look at these numbers, at least so far, what comes to mind for you? Uh, look, I, I think Roy's right. It's a very early indicator, but the, the fact that Ruben has now in multiple uh, multiple quarters outraised Kerry Lake is is a sign of something, you know, a sign of his grassroots support. Uh, but I mean, again, I would just caution: like there will be such a flood of outside and national money in this race that we're talking about a million dollar difference between the two candidates at this point. I mean, that's just a drop in the ocean right. for what it's going to be. I mean, so in that case, then do these numbers? Is it more of like a? I don't want to say psychological, but is it more of like a? Is it more symbolic, maybe? The, the amount of money that is raised relative to like compared to the amount that a candidate might actually need to to do what they want to do and get their message out. I think it's just a very early, early indicator of momentum and strength. Period. OK, that's fair. All right. So, guys, we saw also this week an effort. Uh, Governor Hobbs, we talked about her state of the state speech. She went out of her way to praise the Arizona Commerce Authority for uh, bringing jobs in and some of the economic development work that it's been doing for the state. Um, We then saw that uh, State Senator... Uh, Jake Hoffman, leader of the the Freedom Caucus, wants to do away with the uh, <laughs> with the Commerce Authority. Matt, how do you see this uh, this issue shaking out? Like, is there any chance that this this thing goes away? You know, it sets up a really interesting dynamic because 
some kind of traditionally Republican, maybe not conservative, but Republican constituencies, business constituencies. Arizona Chamber, for example, is is an organization that came out very immediately pushing back uh, on, you know, uh, Hoffman and the Freedom Caucus's plan to to do away with the Commerce Authority. We heard from Danny Seiden at the the very top there, the head of the chamber, yeah. Correct. Uh, And and making the point themselves that, you know, if if you do this – now you've allowed Democrats to kind of take up the mantle of job creation and, and economic strength and all of those things. So I think it's an interesting fight. I, I suspect that the Commerce Authority is going to survive. It. Speaking of Jan Brewer, it's something that she created right. over a decade ago, You know, coming out of the, the throes of the, the Great Recession, and it has been tremendously successful. So, you know, it doesn't – it's not to say that there haven't been, you know, things to quibble with about some individual spending and things like that. Conservatives in particular have have always had kind of an issue with some of the incentives that are given to to companies that locate here, but on the on the all in all, I think it's been a successful organization. I sus, I uh, suspect it's going to survive. Roy, do you see this as a potentially big fight at the Capitol this year? It, it could be, though. Uh, though I agree with Matt that in the end, I think it's it's going to survive and it'll be reauthorized. I mean, you know, I always say like we live in interesting times. I mean, this debate is a kind of a good example of that, where you've got a Democratic governor arguing rightfully that this uh, agency needs to continue uh, its work, and it does vital work. I mean, you know, we're constantly uh, hear about you know companies uh, relocating here, building new factories, new businesses here, investing in Arizona. And a lot of those things happen because of what the Commerce Authority does. And, of course, we even things like the semiconductor industry in Taiwan, uh, you know, that stuff happened because the Commerce Authority, you know, helped make that happen. So ultimately, I think the reality will hit and that we need to continue this in order to continue our economic maturity and development in the state. Right. I mean, literally just this week, there was a, a ranking. Arizona ranked number one in the country for manufacturing job growth. Hmm. And, you know, not all of that, but some of that is due to the work of the Commerce Authority, the fact that, you know, companies like TSMC and a lot of the other manufacturers have located here. It's not a coincidence. So we saw this week uh, two things related to uh, – we talked a little bit about uh, abortion in terms of the governor's State of the State speech. Two two bits of news this week uh, from the ballot measure front on abortion. There's a a new group uh, called It Goes Too Far, which uh, started doing some work to uh, try to convince Arizonans to oppose this measure, assuming that it makes the ballot. We also saw the group – uh, Arizona for Abortion Access say it's collected uh, more than 250,000 signatures so far to get it on the ballot. Matt, I'm curious, like from your perspective, is it a better uh, a better strategy for the it goes too far for the opponents to try to convince people not to sign up to put their name to get this on the ballot? Or is it a better strategy to uh, to assume that maybe it gets to the ballot, there'll be legal challenges, of course, but then try to convince voters to vote against it? Well, the short answer is you have to do both. And every ballot campaign, every opposition campaign, you know, that first that first effort is to just keep it off the ballot. And part of that is hoping that the other side can't get enough signatures to qualify for the ballot, legal challenges to try to get thrown off the ballot. So you have to do all that up front because mm-hmm. if you can keep this fight from happening, if you can keep it off the ballot, then that saves you, you know, tens of millions of dollars down the road in terms of a campaign you won't have to wage. So you do that, but simultaneously you're gearing up for a fight assuming it does make the ballot. And oh boy, this will be a fight at the ballot. Do you think it makes the ballot ultimately? I do. 
I mean, they've they've already collected two hundred fifty thousand signatures. You know, allegedly that's what right. they say, and so I I think they'll have little difficulty qualifying. Roy, do you think they make the ballot? I, I do. I mean, two hundred fifty thousand signatures at this early stage. I mean, the deadline to submit is not until this summer, right? right in July. So, so, so we've you know we've got several month, more months to go, but it's a great start. It's going to make the ballot. There's going to be significant investment on the pro side to get it passed, millions and millions of dollars. And, you know, if polling is correct, if outcomes in other states that have you know recently voted on similar measures are correct, then it's going to pass. And I think it's going to be actually something that's very beneficial um, to Democrats in the state. I mean, if we're just talking about the political aspect of this, I think that's that's going to be very helpful to the statewide and to the congressional and legislative candidates that are running. It's kind of interesting the name of the group. It goes too far because this was sort of telegraphed by critics of the at least the language when it first came out that this was going to be the strategy that it not so much that it you know allows uh, abortion up to the point of viability, but that there are also some exceptions that go beyond that, and that was sort of going to be the the part of the initiative that critics would go after. Is that how easy or difficult will it be? Do you think, Roy, for supporters of the measure? to try to, you know, assuage concerns about about some of those things? Well, I mean, I, again, I, I, I think that the language in the measure is similar to what was recently passed in Ohio, for example. Um, I don't think it's, you know, goes too far. I don't think it's vague. I know that was another sort of argument that it made. I think it actually, you know, is right sort of in the heart of where the average Arizonan is. What Again, what polling shows Arizonans believe when it comes to the right to an abortion um, and as a result, I think it's going to pass. So a lot of those things, those, those arguments that they're going to make, they're probably going to be legal challenges, don't get me wrong. But just sure. from a political side, you know, messaging side, I don't think they're going to land because I think ultimately more people are going to agree with the proponents. Matt, what do you think about that, especially compare, you know, relative to what Roy was talking about and how this issue has played out in other states and in other elections? Well, specifically what they're saying goes too far is that, look, the amendment says that uh, abortion will be legal up to the up to fetal viability, which is 23 to 24 weeks. Beyond that, however, it provides for you can get a, a later term, term abortion if, for example, uh, it's it, you get a, a approval or a recommendation or whatever the term is they use from a quote-unquote healthcare professional, which is very broad. I don't, does that apply to, I don't know, my podiatrist? I mean, what is a healthcare professional? That's a very broad term. It doesn't specify it has to be an OB or something like that. So healthcare professional is broad, and it also allows for a uh, a, a later term abortion uh, if it's deemed in the interest of the mental health of the mother. Again, opponents of the amendment will say that's really broad. That could be for virtually any reason, and so I think that is going to be the the ground on which the uh, initiative is fought. You know, is that are Arizona voters comfortable with that? Uh, and I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's that's going to be the fight that will play out over the coming year. So we just have about 30 seconds left. So I want to ask each of you, crystal balls, I know, cloudy often. How much money, Matt, do you think ultimately when all is said and done will be spent on this initiative? Oh, I, I think in all likelihood it will be the most expensive initiative in state history. I mean exceeding Prop 127, which I was involved in way back in 2018. So mm. tens of millions. Tens of millions. Roy, what do you think? Tens of millions, $30, 40000000 million. Probably. So much money. Yeah. So many ads, so many things in our mailboxes, right? Amongst other ads, right? Amongst, I mean, other, amongst right. the hundreds of millions for the Oh, there's also a presidential and campaign race. and a Senate race going on. All right. Roy Herrera, Matthew Benson, thanks you much. Thanks to you both for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. 
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, learning to thrive in the desert with cake. But first, a prestigious fellowship program has changed its language requirement after some applicants were denied because they hadn't learned a world language in an academic setting. Veronica Valencia-Gonzalez is a doctoral candidate at the University of California, Irvine, where she researches intimate partner violence and gender-based violence in Latinx communities. She'd applied for a Fulbright-Hayes Fellowship to continue her work in Mexico, but her application was rejected. She wrote an essay about her experience, and when I spoke with her earlier, I asked her to tell me what happened with that application and why this one area seemingly kept her out. Yeah, so I, when I started the doctoral program, I knew I wanted to do research in Mexico on gender-based violence. And the Fulbright Hayes is a perfect fellowship that allows you to do this. So I applied to the fellowship to do research in Mexico. I had a great application. I had a very thought out plan to come and do research on gender-based violence in Michoacan. I submitted my application, got wonderful feedback on my actual project idea, but when I looked down on the language category, I saw that I had zero points because I was a native or heritage Spanish speaker. And that ended up putting me out of contention for the Fulbright. And to be clear, you are fluent in Spanish, yes? I am fluent. Spanish was my first language. I learned it at home with my parents. And I actually didn't start learning English until I was in kindergarten at school. So how did you find out that the fact that you are a a native speaker of Spanish would hurt you on your application? Like, was that something that you knew when you submitted the application, for example? It was not something that I knew. Um, I had applied to the Fulbright uh, Research Program, which is a different program than the Fulbright Hayes. And there, um, I hadn't gotten any feedback as towards my Spanish um, acquisition in my home. And it wasn't until I applied for Fulbright Hayes and looked at the results and looked at my zero points for language sections that I found out that you were penalized for having learned language outside of the classroom. Well, so and as you write, this system kind of prioritizes people who have learned a foreign language in school, right, like in an academic setting, as opposed to people who have maybe learned it by traveling or because family members speak it or because it was the language spoken in their home growing up. What are some of the implications of that? So for people like myself that are the children of migrants, we are very likely to have learned our parents' language from their home country in our home. So that ends up putting us out of contention for this uh, fellowship because we didn't learn the language the way that the Department of Ed seems to um, want us to. So people like myself are unable to do this type of research. People that bring in a lot of cultural knowledge that they've gained through their family are going to be unable to do this type of work. Does it also impact the kind of research that you do? Because I would imagine that, like, growing up in a place or having family members from a particular place would give you maybe a different language education than if you learn it in, let's say, high school or college or grad school. 
Yes. So that was like the other thing that I thought was really interesting because my parents didn't have the opportunity to attend um, school past the third grade. Mm. And the way that they speak Spanish isn't the way that you hear it in the classroom. Their Spanish is a lot more informal. And that is the language that the people that I was going to be working with also speak. So it was actually a benefit to have learned the language from my parents instead of in the classroom, which is the more formal Spanish. And the classroom that I did learn, the Spanish that I did learn in the classroom was actually Spaniard Spanish, which is different than Mexican Spanish. And even in Mexico, there's different variations that you'll find throughout Mexico. And I would imagine it's not just a Spanish question, right? Like if you grow up in in Montreal, that's a different kind of French you learn that's spoken than is what is spoken in France. And there are examples all over the world of languages even within a country being spoken differently. So like what was the rationale? What have you heard from people uh, maybe within the U.S. Education Department or others with this program about why it's set up this way? I actually haven't heard much other than that was the guidance that was established. And that is the rule that is in place right now. So it must be followed or it was followed until the injunction that was issued by the court. Yeah, let me ask you about that, because you and and at least one other uh, person are involved in a lawsuit trying to get this changed, right? Like, what is the, the status of that suit? And what ideally would you like to see coming out of it? So the lawsuit that was brought with myself and two other students um, was able to bring about an injunction. So the Fulbright evaluation couldn't implement that penalization for people that had learned the language in their home as native or heritage speakers. So for this application cycle, that rule was not applied. In the future, I'm hoping that Fulbright changes their rules. So they, they're being asked to change their rules. And in the future, I'm hoping that that rule's just eliminated. Like you're not being penalized regardless of how you learn to speak the language that you want to go do research. I think instead we should be prioritizing research that is being done abroad regardless of the language and how you acquired it. But to be clear, like you, you still think that there does need to be some kind of language language requirement. Like if you're going to a foreign country where they don't speak English, it would be helpful for the researcher to speak that language as opposed to needing a translator or an interpreter the entire time they're there, right? Of course, of course. I mean, in order to be able to do the research and really immerse yourself in the culture, I think it's very important for us to know the languages that we're going to be encountering when we travel. So I'm not saying that there should be no language requirement. It just shouldn't matter whether we learned the language at home or we learned it in the classroom. We are already asked for an evaluator to evaluate our language knowledge. So it shouldn't be a problem. Okay. And can you tell me a little bit about the kind of research that you're hoping to do in Mexico? So I was going to be researching intimate partner violence in rural communities of Michoacán. I was interested in understanding how intimate partner violence is understood in these communities and the types of resources that they have available. I was also interested in knowing what types of resources they want that are not available. 
Well, so given that now you can't do that research, at least not yet, like what are we losing out on? What is What are those communities losing out on potentially? Unfortunately, in Mexico, most of the research that has been done on intimate partner violence has been in urban settings, which is totally different from rural settings in the amount of resources that are available. So right now, we're not able to assist people in rural communities to the best of our abilities. All right. That is Veronica Valencia-Gonzalez, a doctoral candidate at the University of California, Irvine. Veronica, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Effective January 8th of this year, the U.S. Education Department has revised the language proficiency requirements for the Fulbright-Hayes Fellowship to include native and heritage speakers of a non-English language. I had spoken with Gonzalez before that change was made. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Artist Luis Rivera Jimenez's work isn't normally about the desert southwest, but the racial complexities of the Caribbean. But last year, he was brought to Phoenix to be the Cala Alliance's latest artist in residence. And much of his work here culminated in a show at the ASU Art Museum that tackled race in some surprising ways. My co-host Lauren Gilger got a tour of it with Rivera Jimenez last year, beginning with a living room, a shelf of books, and what looked like a flowchart on the wall featuring none other than the Kardashians. We'll let him explain. This is this is the famous Kardashian poster, right? Um, it is um, a systematic analysis of the genealogy and the connections that you can find and make um, if you start dotting the lines between the relationships that the Kardashian clan has had kind of across music and movies and actors, right? You know, it's an interesting spread where we can come from Kim Kardashian to Bad Bunny. We can go to Kris Jenner to Chris Rock. We can kind of connect Khloe Kardashian to Elvis Presley through all this kind of weird uh, interwoven web of connections, let's say. So why the Kardashians? Because the books on the wall over here are largely about race, right? And indigenous history, things like that. Things that you probably studied when you came to Phoenix to do this project here. And and you're looking at race. Why the Kardashians? Well, I feel like the Kardashians are an interesting example of the reference that we can all have. Like, um, I feel like if race is already a very divisive, complicated kind of It's a theme that comes with a lot of conflict kind of deep inside it. I feel like I'm really interested in looking for places of commonality, right? Weird places where we can come together and maybe we don't have to talk about race as this big capital R, big word that can seem to throw some people off. But if I can get you in the gallery and we can talk about why Kid Rock and Bad Bunny are on the same kind of poster board connected, I feel like that could be a step forward to an in on a conversation that maybe isn't necessarily had always about race. That's so interesting. And, and what you're getting at partially in this entire project, it sounds like, is, is this idea that we don't want to talk about race. Like, we don't feel comfortable talking about it. It's the kind of thing you don't talk about in polite society, right? And you, you're trying to break that down a little bit, it seems. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I have one of the environments here just kind of be like a very cozy place, right? You know, this a place where you can kind of like sit down and try to talk about race. So tell me, before we move on here, a little bit about your own background. You're from Puerto Rico, and you came here through a grant from the Cal Alliance to, to kind of study race in a different context. Do you usually look at race through, you know, the context of the Caribbean? Yeah, definitely. I feel that since race is such an important part of the history of the Caribbean, 
um, the way it's kind of shaped and molded the relationship we have the rest of the world. Um, race has kind of been like a very illuminating structure for me to think about my history and my own place in the world and how the rest of the world sees me, right? Um, a lot of like Puerto Rican products, you know, kind of like music and celebrities and kind of even beauty aesthetics are global at this point. And it was always really interesting for me to look at it through the like the lens of race. And I think it gave me a certain amount of tools that kind of permit me then to come to Phoenix. And, you know, if I have kind of a setup where I have some sort of verb, I have a noun, right? I come to Phoenix and I say like, well, race is a structure that's global. It's a structure that operates um, in ways that's unseen. In Puerto Rico, it's X, Y, and Z. Let's see what happens when I go and investigate how it is in Phoenix, right? Let's see what other letters it is in Phoenix. That's really interesting. Okay, so let's see more, and then at the end I'll ask you about what you found. (laughs) So you walk into this gallery, and, I mean, the first thing that probably strikes you is this entire back wall and a half or so here is just covered in posters with different phrases on them. Let's talk about this. I mean, can you read a few of these for us and and talk about how you chose them? Oh, sure. Um, All of these were kind of sourced during my research, right, I kind of had like a very large notes file where I would just like write these things down that I would either hear on the street, I would um, see them in conversation kind of in people. I can read a couple here. There's one that I saw very quickly. It says, I am the spice of life. There's another that reads, is your future hopeful? Which one of you will tell me who I am? What the f*** does multicultural even mean? Do you understand the pain of illegibility? Words are very unnecessary. They can only do harm. Some of these are are backwards, is that right? Yes, some of them are uh, mirrored. Um, This kind of comes up in the idea that sometimes and the ways we talk about race and the ways we talk about identity are interestingly uh, coded, right? I feel like sometimes we have these ideas of who gets to speak on whose experience, whose experience makes sense to me, whose experiences seem alien to me. And to add to that kind of layer of obfuscation, I'm really interested in also having the words and the things that are being said here literally not be legible in an actual sense. There's an exercise that kind of comes up where to read them you need kind of the help of a mirror or kind of the most common mirror we have, kind of like a selfie. Good point. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is a little that um, you have to get some skin in the game, right? You need to kind of insert yourself in the reading of certain texts to also get the meaning of the text, right? I think one of the really interesting ones that that's, people were pointing out while we were working, right? There's one here that says, it's racist, but like chill. And that becomes a very different kind of statement depending on who's reading it, right? Who says it, where is it coming from, right? I think that if you heard, you know, someone like me, a black man say it's racist, but like chill, there's a certain context that differs if a white man came in here and said, yeah, it's racist, but like chill. Very different. That's fascinating. You're getting it much more than that here. because I mean, so that is getting at something bigger, right? Because you're using various forms of art. You get t-shirts here. Over there, there are sort of collared shirts with messages printed on them. You've got sort of objects, found objects over here. Like, using different materials. What are you saying with that? 
Well, I think the really important thing is that race comes at us in all kinds of ways. It, it isn't just stuck on, let's say, this idea of kind of a superstructure, right? I, I know a lot of us kind of imagine this idea of a white supremacist system, uh, a, a system of racism that kind of precedes all of us. And I think that we need to find more spaces to think about it on the tangible, right? You know, what does it mean that race is a superstructure that goes above all, a lot of political and social? It means that race kind of follows us everywhere, you know? It's in our clothes. It's in the ways we talk. It's in the things we have in our homes. It's the way we dress. It's the things that we carry with us that we might not necessarily think are racialized, but in the space we live in are 100% racialized. Hence the Kim Kardashian genealogy over there, right? Because she is somebody, and that family is is something that like sort of plays with race. This idea of what do I look like today? Of course, I mean, I you know we, we could have a long conversation about you know Kim Kardashian kind of setting trends and how women want to look, right? What body shapes are we trying to kind of emulate? She takes out her implants and she starts looking more like a white woman again, right? Or was she ever a white woman? I don't know. She's like. <laughs> Lebanese or she's Persian? Armenian. Armenian. Right? I know that, yes. <laughs> there we go. I mean, that's the best example, right? You know, you, you're clear on what her kind of background is. And that's why I think she's a great jumping off point because the relationship you have to her, we can talk about it. There's no one that doesn't have a space here to talk about race, right? I think that everybody is implicated in race in ways that they are aware of and ways that they aren't aware of. And I'm looking to build a space where we can kind of everybody come together and talk about our own positioning inside race. I'll leave it there. Louise, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. That was Lauren's conversation with Puerto Rican artist Luis Rivera Jimenez. His show, A Brief Proposal on Race and Cultural Cosplay, recently closed at the ASU Art Museum. As part of our ongoing Saguaro Land series, we asked several local artists and writers to offer depictions of life in the Sonoran Desert. Tempe artist Safwat Salim uses baking as a metaphor for describing how he and his young daughter are learning to thrive here. I feel miserable cake, a recipe you will need. 1.8 million cups of global pandemic. A pinch of crumbling democracy. Zero tablespoons of child care. There is no child care. Two ounces of realization that it's everyone for themselves. And there is no one watching out for you. And some sugar. You always need sugar. Mix ingredients well and bake until nothing makes sense anymore. Your cake is now ready to be enjoyed. I've always lived in the desert. It feels like home to me. I grew up in the UAE, which is the Arabian Desert, and then as an adult, I traded that for the Sonoran Desert. A desert, by definition, is a place that is somewhat hostile to life. And maybe because I've been an immigrant all my life, trying to make home in places that are inhospitable or unwelcoming, it just feels like it's part of the deal. And so why not try living in the desert? But the past few years here have tested my immigrant resolve. In 2020, when my daughter was three years old, I was trying to figure out how to be a caregiver to a tiny human and keep a full-time job and be an artist all at the same time. I had not made any art in a while. And even if I had any desire to make art, 
I was I was too busy being a parent to find the time, energy, and the confidence to make something, anything. Then came the pandemic. It felt like people who were quarantined at home seemed to split into two groups. In the first group, people were like, I'm learning French. I am learning how to make sourdough bread. I have so much time on my hands, I don't even know what to do. And the other group consisted of people with young kids. We were in Zoom meetings while trying to raise children, while also trying not to lose our minds. We did not learn any French. At least I didn't. I think that being a parent and an artist is, is just hard enough as is, and the pandemic just tipped things over the edge for me. But then came the summer of 2020. Surviving the Arizona Summer Cake, a recipe you will need. 145 days of a brutal summer like no other. Two tablespoons of riots in the streets. Five imaginary cups of conspiracy theories. Zero tablespoons of making art. You are unable to make any art or process what is even happening. Mix all ingredients really well. Or don't feel voiceless. Set oven to 350 degrees and wait for sadness to consume you. Top with fruit. Your cake is now ready to be enjoyed. Okay, look, I know it's always been hot here, but that summer with everything else that was going on, we had 145 days of over 100 degrees, which remains a record. And so looking at the botched response to the pandemic and the mistrust of scientific expertise uh, and the rise of conspiracy theories and just our general inability to be kind, rational human beings, all of that mixed with this unrelenting heat was a daily reminder that maybe we would not be able to go back to how things were before. Living in the desert, I feel like climate change is always hovering in the back of my mind. And if we were unable to come together in the face of an immediate threat like the pandemic, how could humans possibly solve a global existential threat like climate change? At this point, I was seeing everything through the lens of my daughter. What kind of a life would she have or not have when she was older? It was beginning to feel like maybe we were on a sinking ship. It's all that I could think about all the time, which just made my descent into misery even worse. But then one day, I remember coming across a recipe for a cake. It was a peach cake. I just could not get that cake out of my head. I kept thinking that I feel so miserable, but I bet eating that cake would make me feel better. I had never baked anything before, but I needed to know if eating that cake would help. And so I made the cake. And you know what? It tasted really good, and it did make me feel better about the end of the world. And obviously, the logical next step here was to make more cakes. And that's what I did. I made more cakes, and even more cakes. I made butter cakes, and all cakes. I made flourless cakes, and gluten-free cakes. I made cheesecakes, and those finicky little sponge cakes, chocolate cakes, vanilla cakes, hazelnut cakes, olive oil cakes, cardamom cakes, orange cakes, strawberry cakes, peanut butter cakes, chocolate vanilla hazelnut, olive oil, cardamom, orange cakes, strawberry cake, peanut butter, chocolate vanilla hazelnut, olive oil, cardamom, orange And I ate all of them. I began to experiment with them. It slowly became something that I, I got creative with. I was making my own versions of recipes that I was coming across. It also became something that I could involve my daughter in. It felt like for the first time in a long time, I was being creative again. It, it really felt like I was making art, except I was making it with my daughter. All that cake making, 
and cake eating, it led to making actual art with my daughter. And now, working with her is a part of my practice. In the face of overwhelming factors that I have no control over, our work together feels like it's an act of resistance. I might not be able to shield my daughter from climate change, but every time we make something together, it gives me a little bit of hope. And perhaps this work that my daughter and I make together, just like the story that you're listening to right now, it will bring solace to my daughter someday when she really needs it. Everything will be okay, cake, a recipe you will need. One cup of impending doom. One tablespoon of an eating disorder. One daughter who gives the most incredible hug this universe has ever known. One actual cake from a bakery that both you and your daughter love. And some sugar. You can never have enough sugar. Mix all ingredients until you begin to feel momentarily better. Savor that moment because it won't last long. Your cake's now ready to be enjoyed. I still can't shake the feeling that these are dark times. And if anything, it's only gotten worse. And there is perhaps no coming back from this. And I'm not sure how to accept that. But on days when I'm overwhelmed by that feeling, I try to hug my daughter a little extra tight. And in that moment, when my daughter hugs me back, feels like maybe, just maybe, everything will be okay. I have no choice but to believe that. I have a child to take care of, and more cakes to make. Let's make a cake, Baba. I love cake. <laughs> <laughs> that was Tempe artist Safwat Salim. You can listen to his essay again and hear more from our Sawaraland series at kjzz.org. And that'll do it for this Friday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Reminder, you can always follow the show on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Have a terrific rest of your day. Have a great weekend. Hope to have you right back here on Monday. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.